So today is Palm Sunday. It's the day we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. The Passover celebration was just a few days away. The city was packed with pilgrims who were filled with wild enthusiasm. Jesus was coming to town. Let me just read the account from John chapter 12. So six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Now here's a little editorial note that John gives us. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews has found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. Jesus was such a well-known and controversial person, it was just impossible for him to come to Jerusalem unnoticed. From all over the country, people had come to the Passover feast. Many sought Jesus, but actually, Lazarus was a pretty big draw himself. You know, not, nobody had ever seen someone who'd been raised from the dead. And because Lazarus had died and been raised from the dead, many Jews were beginning to believe in Jesus. It says in verse 10, So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So the, the chief priests, the religious leaders, were planning to kill two people, Jesus and Lazarus. It says the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! <clears throat> the Palm Sunday account is given in all four of the Gospels. Dr. Luke adds, adds this one interesting comment. He says, But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. Jesus replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into wild cheers. I mean, things were really looking good on Palm Sunday. Jesus was coming to town. A huge crowd filled with just wild expectation about what Jesus was going to do uh, had began to gather. The throng was growing and increasing. And, and <clears throat> the idea that Lazarus had been raised from the dead Everyone had heard about that, and the news had spread through the city, and now Jesus is coming to town. Jesus, the miracle worker. Jesus, the one who had opened blind eyes. Jesus, the one who had caused deaf people to hear. Jesus, who raised Lazarus from the dead. He was coming to town, and maybe, maybe he was even the Messiah. Maybe he was going to throw the Romans off our back. The crowd was waving palm branches, and they, they were sharing a custom that had been reserved for greeting miraculous, victorious military leaders. The people were shouting, Hosanna! You shouted that just a minute ago. And it literally means, please save or save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. 
It was truly a great day. I mean, the crowd was just going bonkers. But the week that started out so quickly spiraled out of control. And by Good Friday, it was just a total disaster. The crowd that had been shouting, Hosanna, save us, had changed their tune. Now they were chanting, crucify him. So many people had their hopes riding on Jesus, but it, it didn't work out the way they expected. And so that, on that fateful Friday, he was executed as a common criminal. But, spoiler alert, he didn't stay dead. He rose to life again on the third day. And next week, Kurt's going to tell us all about that. But today, I want to tell you a story from the life of Jesus that happened actually about six months before this time. Today, I want to share with you something that happened at the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles a few months before. It's a story found in John chapter 7. The Jewish annual calendar describes three major feasts. There's quite a few other ones, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Passover was probably the most important of the Jewish feasts and festivals. It, re it reminded people of the time <clears throat> that God set His people free out of Egypt, and when the angel of death passed over their homes, if they had put the blood over their doors. <clears throat> and on that day, they were instructed to bake their bread without leaven in them because they were going to have to eat quick and be on the run. And so they remembered that unleavened bread um, on that feast. The next one, the Feast of Weeks, was celebrated um, the, the giving of the law, which is the Pentecost time, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. The Feast of Tabernacles was really a special time for the Jewish people. It was a time where they stopped to remember how good God had been to them and the Feast of Tabernacles happened at harvest time every year. They'd make these little um, tents or booths to go out. They piled up tree branches. And um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said this was the most festive, the most fun feast of the year. It's kind of like the Oktoberfest. I mean, it was like going to a party, celebrating harvest, and everyone was happy. And, and so <clears throat> here was Jesus six months ahead. Um, he was going to Jerusalem because all males over 12 years old were required to go to the, these feasts. Um, he was coming uh, into Jerusalem. Probably he'd been there many times before. You remember when he was there at age 12, his parents accidentally left him behind. And um, I don't know how that happened, but they were on their way home and they... They had left him behind, and it says in Luke 2, 46, after three days they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus had been to Jerusalem a lot of times, maybe in 20 years. He'd been there 60 times or more. So he was well known in Jerusalem. Each time he came to the city, he was becoming more and more famous, and because of that, more and more dangerous. So the leaders of the city, the, the ones who ruled the synagogues and the religious people, they saw Jesus as a dangerous enemy. He was someone that they really needed to keep an eye on. In fact, some leaders felt so threatened that they thought actually killing him would be the only answer. So the story 
today unfolds, Jesus is becoming a national figure, and here's where your note sheet starts, John chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were waiting there to take his life. The Jews, he's talking about the religious leaders. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, Jesus' brothers, Jesus had brothers, other sons born to Joseph and Mary after his birth. They told him that in their opinion, that a Messiah couldn't put himself on display just in the backwater towns of the area. He would need to go to Jerusalem. He couldn't be hanging out in Scotts Mills and Silverton and Mount Angel. He needed to go to Portland. I mean, he needed to go to the big time. And they felt like the perfect time would be the popular Feast of Tabernacles. If he really claimed to be who he was, he should go somewhere big and put it on display. Show yourself to the world. Go to Jerusalem. Do some miracles up there. John gives us another insight about Jesus' brothers in verse 5. He says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify to what it does is evil. <clears throat> Jesus told his brothers, you know, any time is right for you because it's not dangerous for you. You know, they're not after you, they're after me. So it's got to be the right time. So Jesus tells them about the Feast of the Tabernacles. He tells them in verse 8, you go to the feast. I'm not going, I'm not yet going up to this feast because for me the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. So Jesus was under a lot of pressure from his followers. Take your ministry to the next level. Take it to the big stage up in Jerusalem. You've been doing a lot of amazing things, but nobody sees it. It's always before small crowds. And now his followers are thinking, this is the big moment. This is the big feast. This is Jerusalem. Jesus says, again, not yet. It's not the right time. If you've been watching The Chosen at all, you, you see his common answer is soon. Well, soon isn't soon enough for his followers. Verse 10, however, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. So there's a whispering campaign going on about Jesus. People don't know who he really is. They, 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 he might be somebody important, he might not be, but he's controversial and he's exciting. Now at verse 14, it says, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Now all of a sudden the light has come on. Oh, we know who this guy is. At verse 25, it says, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from when the Christ comes, and no man will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me. 
and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. That's clear to see Jesus is speaking before a very divided crowd of listeners. Some of them wanted to have him arrested. Some of them wanted him have him killed. Some thought he was a fake. Some thought he was, this was the original fake news. Some thought he was fake. Some thought he was a pretender. And some thought he might even be the Messiah. And you can see their main argument was this in verse 27. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he's from. There, there was a popular view about the Messiah that he was just going to suddenly appear out of nowhere. So it couldn't possibly be Jesus because they knew him. They knew where he was from. They knew his family. They knew he was from Nazareth. And there was no sudden appearance. He's been living in the neighborhood all along. He doesn't look anything like what they expected. He doesn't act anything like what they expected. That was the popular view. <clears throat> Others thought, well, there's a good chance he might be the Messiah. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appeared, will he do more signs than this man has done? So part of the crowd was impressed with the miracles, and part of the crowd was disappointed about, you know what, and the, the opposition was starting to boil. The main reason the opposition was intensifying actually wasn't really because Jesus didn't look like what they thought. It was because what he said. The most offensive part of what Jesus said, and to be honest, still some 2,000 years later, is pretty offensive to many, isn't what he said about himself. It's what he said about them. Let's look again at verse 28. It says, Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. And, and I think he's speaking with some pointed irony. You know me. You know where I'm from. Then he says, I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. Now, here's what he says that's very offensive to these people. You do not know him. You don't know him. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Don't miss the words, you do not know him. These are... <clears throat> Words that strike right at the heart of why they're mad at him. These strike right at the heart of why they want to kill him. Jesus is telling them, you're the more, most religious, you're the most well-taught people in the world, you're the most privileged people in the world, you are the people that have been entrusted with the word of God, but you do not know God. Jesus says, I know God because I am from God, God sent me, but since you don't know God, you can't recognize me. And that's why you want to kill me. Here's the point. You might write this down. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. Over and over again in the Bible, Jesus makes it plain that if you reject him as God's son, if you continue to reject him as the supreme Lord of your life, then you don't know God, you don't love God, you don't honor God as your father. No matter what your religion, no matter what other relationship you have, <clears throat> You don't know God if you reject Jesus. Here are five examples from John. John 5, 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 5, 42. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. John 6, 45. 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 8, 19. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. John 8, 42. If God were your Father, you would love me. So friends, if you want to help somebody discover who God really is, what God, who, what God is really like, ask them about Jesus. Ask them about the Son of God. Ask them about the one who was crucified for sinners, who's the only hope for the world. What people believe about Jesus will reveal it, their heart about what they believe about God. If they will not have Jesus as their Lord, then according to him, they do not have God as their Father. So the majority of the crowd didn't like that. They wanted to have Jesus arrested, and, um, and, and they were worried about it. It says in John 7, 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. So they called the police. The police came to arrest him. They, they showed up. They intend to arrest him. <clears throat> and um, it says in John 7, 33, Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I will go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Now, they're puzzled by this. You came to arrest me, but I will choose where I go, and when I go, and who will follow me, and who won't follow me. And um, you, you can't take me early, and you can't keep me here. If I choose to leave, I'm going to go. Your plans for me are futile because I've come to do my Father's will, not yours. And it will be done exactly on time, exactly the way the Father has designed it. <clears throat> and so in verse 36, they're scratching their head. They're saying, what did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me? So, so look at the situation. The crowd's been told that they don't know God, that the Pharisees are powerless to do anything about it, that all their schemes and all their plots aren't going to work. So now what? What will Jesus do? What will he say? The Feast of Tabernacle celebration is going on. It's what brought all these people here. And um, everyone's actually in a good mood. It's Mardi Gras. It's Oktoberfest. They came to party. And, um, and then the grand finale has come on the last day of the feast. The huge throng is gathered. Most people want to see Jesus arrested. The, the Pharisees sent in the temple guard, the police, to do it. They're standing right there in front of him, waiting for him to just to slip up somehow. And then the guards go back to the Pharisees empty-handed. And uh, listen to what they say. John seven forty-five. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Here's their answer. It's kind of lame, actually. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. We sent you out to arrest him. Why didn't you arrest him? Because no one ever spoke like he did. So what does Jesus do at the moment? The, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the crowds have been hostile to him. What does Jesus do? These are the words I want to focus on today. And picture this in your mind. This very tumultuous crowd, very divided. John 37, or John 7:37 says, "On the last 
and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Now, what I've been sharing with you so far might be something you've never really thought about before. The words that Jesus is speaking, he's not speaking to his followers. He's not speaking to the people who have been rooting for him all along. He's speaking these words to his enemies. He's speaking these words to people who want to see him arrested and killed. And what he's doing is he's giving them a totally open-ended invitation to everyone that's within sound of his voice. Actually, even today, everyone that's within sound of my voice. He's inviting them to come to him and drink. The only qualification that Jesus mentions is thirst. He says, if anyone is thirsty, anyone, if any Pharisee, if any chief priest, if any officer trying to arrest me, if any person who's been offended by my teaching, if any doubter in the crowd, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Matthew 23 gives a picture of Jesus very near the end of his life. He's looking out over the city of Jerusalem. He says this, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you would not. Jesus says, I've I've tried to put my arms around you so many times. I wanted to gather you. I wanted to stretch out my hands to you. And this was another one of those times. He's trying to gather them. I wonder how many times Jesus has said something like this to you in your life. Come to me. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's amazing. He's saying this to his enemies, to people who are plotting to kill him, to the people who don't believe in him. And he's saying it to you. So what does coming to him mean? What would it mean if you came to him? I want to look at five things towards the end of this message of what it means. The first thing it means coming to Jesus, why don't you write these down? These will help you. Coming to Jesus means thirsting. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There are three wonderful things implied in the words, if anyone thirsts. The condition that you must meet is thirst. That's the condition that you have to meet. You've got to be thirsty to come to Jesus. And the action that you have to take is you need to drink. Come to me and drink. Which points out something that you may not have known. The human soul has thirst. Anyone who is thirsty. We know Jesus is not talking about physical thirst. What he's saying is that the soul has something like like physical thirst. But the soul has a, a thirst of its own. When you go without water, your body gets thirsty. And when your soul goes without God, your soul gets thirsty. Your body was made to live on water. Your soul was made to live on God. 
This is something really important that you need to know about yourself. You were made to live on God. You have a soul. You have a spirit. There is a you that is more than just your body. And the you that's more than your body needs to drink God's goodness and grace. And if you don't drink in God, you'll die of thirst. The third thing to know is about thirst is what Jesus offers is satisfying. That's what I see in the word thirst. The water's free, the soul has a thirst. Jesus aims to satisfy the soul forever. So the second thing that you might want to jot down, come to Jesus to drink. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So three observations. First, Jesus is what we drink. Come to me and drink. Jesus doesn't just have what we need. Jesus is what we need. Jesus isn't just here to solve our problems. Jesus is here to change your life. Remember what he said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. Our souls were made for Jesus. The ache in our heart is an ache for Jesus. This is how our soul lives on God. It lives on Jesus. Jesus is what we drink. Second thing, don't miss this. The soul can drink. Our soul can receive. Jesus is speaking spiritually when he says, come to me and drink. This drinking is not something you do with your mouth. You do it with your soul. You do it spiritually. You were made to do this. You were designed to come to Jesus to drink. Not physically, but spiritually. Come to Jesus, and in the drinking, you receive the water for your soul. The third thing to see from this, coming and drinking, is what it means to believe in Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, is just another way of saying coming and drinking. Coming and drinking Jesus is what happens when we believe. Believing in Jesus is when we come to him and drink. And that's where our soul finds satisfaction. Friends, you've got to totally get the idea out of your head that believing in Jesus is just to know certain facts and historical truths. Believing in Jesus is like finding a spring in the desert when you're dying of thirst. And then you just dive in and drink deeply. This is what the Apostle John meant when he connected believing in Jesus and receiving Jesus. It says in John chapter 1, some, however, did receive him and believed in him, so he gave them the right to become God's children. Believing in Jesus is receiving him as water, as life for the soul. So those three things, Jesus is the water we need, it's our soul that does the drinking, and That is what believing means, coming to Jesus to drink for our soul's satisfaction. So, first thirst, second drink, third thing, a river that flows from the soul. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow within him. Water will flow within him. Literally, it says, out of his belly, out of his innermost being. Call it out of your belly, out of your heart, out of your soul, out of your spirit. What it means is that when you come to Jesus to drink, You don't just get 
a single drink. I took one just a minute ago. I'm going to take one again. And the reality is that single drink helps for a moment, but it doesn't last. Jesus said, I'm going to give you something that lasts. When you come to me, you get a spring. You get a fountain. You get a well. You get Jesus. Rivers will flow from you because the river maker lives in you. That's the point. You're never going to have to search again for a source of satisfaction. For you've got a river maker living inside of you. Every river that needs to flow for joy for your soul, for well-being in your life, is going to come from Jesus. When you come to Him, you get Him. Number four, the spirit of the glorified Jesus. By this He meant the spirit whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. The river Jesus was talking about is an experience with the Holy Spirit that couldn't be enjoyed till after Jesus had died for our sins. And that's, that's what Easter is about. And then he was raised triumphantly over death, and, and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That's, and at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's given. For 33 years, Jesus was with us as a man. He was God incarnate, God in the flesh. But now Jesus is in us by the Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, He will give another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. The experience of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit comes as we receive the risen Christ. And that's what the Father wants to give every believer. If you come to Jesus and drink, you get the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We can't see this, His physical body right now, but He's in us. Romans 8 9 says, You are no longer ruled by your desires, but by God's Spirit who lives in you. People who do not have the Spirit of Christ in them don't belong to Him, but Christ lives in you, so you are alive. Number five, this The Scripture witnesses to the plan of God. Verse 38 says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his hearts will flow rivers of living water. There are so many, many, many Old Testament uh, verses I could share with you. But I don't have the time. We're getting close to the end. Here's the way I think we should end. There are really wonderful implications for us all in that God spoke this reality into place hundreds of years before it ever happened. Isaiah 58, 11 said, You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Psalm 139 says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day passed. God made you to love you. From the very beginning, God's plan was to take care of you, to restore you to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Christ, who had never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's God's plan. And that's the band to come back up. It was God's plan to rescue you. It was God's plan 
for Jesus to stand in Jerusalem and, and actually for me to stand here this morning and cry out, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Is anyone, you, you get that, anyone? You qualify. You're in the anyone category. If any Pharisee, if any chief priest, if any officer, if any doubter in the crowd, if any criminal, if any sex offender, if any alcoholic, if any child abuser, if anyone who's had a spouse betray them, if anyone who's betrayed a spouse, if anyone who's been disappointed, if anyone is drowning in debt, if anyone's battling cancer, if anyone's contemplating suicide, if anyone who's caught in drug addiction, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And out of your heart, Jesus says, will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. You will be like a well-watered garden. Friends, the psalmist says, there's a river that brings joy to the city of God. The holy place where God most high dwells. Are you thirsty? And Jesus says, come to me.